Good morning, and welcome to Jew in the City Speaks with your host, Allison Josephs, also known as Jew in the City. One of the best parts of this job that I would say, uh, besides you know hearing from people whose lives we've changed, because obviously changing someone's life is like pretty awesome, um, I get to meet a lot of really cool people. I get to meet people from all over the world and walks of life, and I get to just hear a lot of inspiring stories and journeys, and then I get to kind of collect them here and, you know, Put them out to the world so you get to meet them too. Um, you know, being out here as sort of the cheerleader of the Jewish people of the Orthodox community um, dredges up, unfortunately, a lot of the the pain in our community and the, the bad stuff that's going on. And we must face that. We must fix it. We must acknowledge it. Um, but, you know, there's still, I think, it's so important for us to remind ourselves all the stuff that's going on that's good and all the stuff that we should look to, all the stuff that hopefully, you know, kids can look to with inspiration, all the stuff that people that might want to grow in their observance to look to for inspiration. So um, we continue to enjoy putting those stories out to you, meeting those people and sharing them with you. And uh, this is the perfect segue for a woman that I met a few months ago. She's British, so I will ha- I'm will. i going to try not to slip into a British accent, but I really want to. Um, and her name is Danielle Sassoon, and she is the founder of this beautiful um, um, accessory label called Panny. And it's I actually have a bag now I've been using. I get compliments everywhere. Um, and she started off... Um, with uh, and she's been in the fashion world for many years now um, and came from a less observant background. So we're going to kind of take her through her story of her career, her life, how the two work together. Um, she graduated from um, from Kingston University with first-class honors, um, and she was guided by Max Mayer's creative director, um, Professor Ian Griffiths. She was then selected by Mr. Griffiths to go to Italy and work under him at Max Mayer of Fashion House. She returned to London to spend four years at the iconic Paul Smith under the inspirational tutelage of Sandra Hill, who's the VP at Coach. She um, joined the internationally renowned Karen Mill- Millen as a head of design for Prince and Woven before being asked by Michael Hertz of creative director of DVF to become the head designer of London line for the vintage brand. Um, I'm going to say this wrong. Aquastacum. Okay. She's going to help me with that. Um, and now she is the director of, um, of Penny. Um, Danielle, thank you so much for joining us today. It's such a pleasure. Such a pleasure. Seriously. I love how you talk. This <laughs> I'm going to just stay quiet now and just talk, talk British to me. No, don't, don't, don't keep quiet. <laughs> um, so, so if you could just, you know, tell us a little bit about you had this really impressive career um, in the fashion world. So I guess um, I wanted to hear sort of sort of both sides of your um, journey. So if you could start us off. So clearly you grew up in in um, the UK, in London yes. or and yes. were you always interested in fashion as a child? Did you have dreams of, you know, doing fashion related things? Did that come later? Actually, not at all. I I I knew that I wasn't academic. I mean, I, I went through school as a sort of dyslexic and um, school was a struggle. And all I knew was that I loved painting. I loved drawing and painting. So that was really it. And, um, and I went on a design art path because of my passion for art rather than my passion for fashion. <laughs> Gosh, that sounds terrible. My passion for fashion. Um, but what happened was when I started at um, university, well, I, I did a foundation course first, which is a year prior to my BA degree. And um, you get to try out all sorts of different artistic um, 
corners like graphic design and um, fine art and fashion and um, architecture, not not sort of architecture and uh, all sorts of things you get to try out on foundation. And um, it just so happened that when I did did my fashion slot, I just f- absolutely fell in love with my teacher who was incredibly inspirational. Her name was Sheila Aslop. I still remember her. Our teachers are our, our who inspire us. And she just showed me that I could be totally, um, I could use my drawing skills mm. in fashion because I could illustrate what I, what I had in my head. And then there's a whole world of prints and, and um, drawing that takes place in that. And it all kind of wove into one. And then I just sort of fell in love with the, the, the process of fashion design. And so what does it take, meaning so you fall in love with it, but you work for some pretty impressive companies. So how do you go from just kind of enjoying this subject in university to <laughs> getting, getting? was it, you know, it's interesting, another uh, British woman who was successful, who was one of our all-stars a couple of years ago, um, Baroness yeah. Roz Altman, who was the UK pensions minister when she came wow. to the all-stars awards. Um, wow. Yeah, she's amazing. She said, you know, she sort of talked about her career and she said, you know, it's hard work, but also a lot of it is mazel. So do you feel that like you were just sort of in the right place in the right time? Or how did you, you know, as I described your bio and sort of the trajectory of your career, um, how did one opportunity lead to another for, you know, for the younger person now that's thinking about the fashion career? How do you go from the interest and maybe, you know, some of that raw talent to the opportunity? I think it's, it's definitely, I look, I believe 100% that it's all mazel because, Hashem rules the world, right? But mm-hmm. but I do also believe really strongly that um, you don't have to be the most talented person in the world. You have to be the hardest worker in the room mm. with a bit of talent. And, um, and I think that's what I was. I think w- when the opportunity from the opportunity of um, the, the creative director of Max Mara asking me to come and be his assistant in Italy really came about because he worked with us. He was the professor of the university and he worked with us really closely. And he just saw that that I was willing to give, not more than everybody, but I, well, maybe, I think maybe I was. I was driven, really, mm-hmm. really, really driven. There was nothing that was going to stop me. And I think that also came from having a very rocky um, school school career. Because mm-hmm. everything at school was about being was about academic achievement, and I felt so sort of trodden on by that. And because mm-hmm. I had my own difficulties in learning, um, I I was hungry and passionate to be able to prove myself. And I I think I I had that more than maybe other people did in my course. And I think that the um, so this man, Ian Griffiths, he saw that in me, that I was willing to give more and um, and muzzle because it was him and it was me and it was and, and he liked me. And, and it was it was a whole mixture of things, but a lot of hard work. Love it. So, OK, so, so you sort of go through and then you obviously proved yourself there, which led to your next opportunity, because I feel like sometimes right. the first opportunity is the hardest. But then if you can perform well, um, you can, you know, continue to excel in your career. So that's I feel like sort of lays the groundwork of the, the career side. What about mm. the Jewish side? 
Um, I know that in uh, the UK, you don't divide yourself into the same boxes that we do in the States. Um, so where did you grow up Jewishly? How do you translate that into American? Um, <laughs> what was your journey to, uh, to I, more observance? So I, my father was very, very, my whole life was very involved in, in his shul and he absolutely has given his life to he's an honorary president now of um of holland park synagogue and and he's a big part of it but we absolutely kept no mitzvahs at Mm -hmm. all but the interesting thing was and i think i'm hoping this is what i will be able to give to my children is that is that if you show in in your family you if you show passion for something and you show that that is at the core of of what means something to you um it just rubs off on your kids because I remember I give you a tiny little story which I my my father for instance he would not he wouldn't be there on often on a Sunday he would go off and do synagogue business on a Sunday and I once once asked him what what he was doing um where, where would he go and and he told me when I was old enough he told me that most Sundays he would um go and help people be buried he would go and wash Mm. and clean and take care of our our Jewish community when they passed away it had tremendous impact on me even though I didn't know it at the time but there was something about that's what means something in life that's what you do with your life you work and then that's but that's what the core is and Mm. um and anyway so I there was very little observance in my home we had Friday night dinners that was about it um and we had to be in shul on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. But then what happened was I was very involved in my career and um, my sister, she, she had her own journey, but like, but what, from my point of view, I just suddenly, my sister started to learn and she was involved with a, um, a place called Ace. You, I mean, of course you have, you know about Asia Torah. Sure, sure. They have it, they have it, we have it, a branch in England. And she did a few, you know, fun things with the kids and the, and, and her friends. And but she started to learn more seriously and, um, and really watching her morph into a, herself, but a different kind of herself was what set the ball rolling for me. Hmm. And I was heavily, like I said, I was heavily involved in my career. And that's really all that meant anything to me. But what happened was it was so overwhelming. The expectations of my job was so, it was so much um, that, and it, and it, it was wearing me down. And I think because I got to that, you kind of get, it was quite extreme, my life in that way with the fashion world. And um, I think that's what made me, realize I've got to I need something like I I needed I needed a fix of something and I think Mm. and I needed a fix of spirituality and because my sister had gone through the process that was that gave me an avenue to go down to pursue so you said that she became a changed person could you describe like in what ways she was changed oh she she let me think she was she was able to communicate with me suddenly in a different way. She was able to show love to me in a different way. Not that she wasn't a wonderful person before, but it, but it was, 
it was real now it was it was like mm -hmm. she she became something different and she also we're talking about I was in my I was about 27 she was about 29 at this point and she um or 26 I was and she she at this point found her soulmate and and found someone to marry and he came into our lives and watching how he, herself and him communicated was like something I'd never seen before. Mm. And I just knew that that's what I wanted. I wanted a relationship like that. I wanted my mm. relationships to be deep and meaningful like that. And to, I, I can't quite put my finger on it. It was, it was more of an observation than something that I can put in words, but it was so beautiful. And it was authentic. And, yeah. And something I'd really, really not come across. I, I came, I grew up in a sort of, um like I went to school with quite privileged girls and and I had a and I, I didn't really want for anything but when I and it was so it was so opposite to the way that it was opposite to what I was seeing in my life so far it was just mm -hmm. a, a want for something something different and deep and and I and I was craving for it by the time I got to 26 I was didn't even realize I was craving for something meaningful in my life because and I didn't know how to get it's not that I didn't I didn't have meaning my family gave me meaning Lot, lots of friendship relationships had great meaning in them but it just it learning Torah kind of showed me an avenue and she showed me an avenue my brother-in-law showed me an avenue of 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 something that was wasn't just learning Hebrew it was it was about about grit and toiling I mean, with, you know what I'm, do you understand what I'm saying? Percent. I mean, <laughs> no, no, I, I, it's making a lot of sense. And, you know, and I think these messages, we have to just keep repeating again and again to the people that never experienced Torah for the first time and for the people that experienced it, but didn't experience it in the way that it's meant to be experienced. Because unfortunately our work in Project Makam has shown me so many people that grew up with this and totally missed the boat. But I think what's so, what I'm really drawing from your description here, and in a lot of ways, it's very similar to my background, a lot of privilege, mm -hmm. a lot of love, um, a lot of success, sort of all the things that are supposed to make life happy. And yes. then suddenly one day you realize that there's something bigger that's missing, that like it ultimately doesn't add up to anything, that there's, there's a thirst in your soul um, to mm -hmm. connect to something um, bigger. Um, to something authentic, to something that's lasting, um, and that there's nothing, at least for me, I could say there's nothing this worldly that could fill that hole in my soul. I needed something spiritual and transcendent to, I think, really feel like the that part of us that yearns for something spiritual. I think it's the part, you know, we're in an age now where there was like some crazy study, like more people would save their pet over like a, a stranger <laughs> that was human, like literally. So oh. like we're at a point now where like, like a lot of humans don't even know the difference between like a creature that Animals. has a soul and doesn't. And yet what you describe here, that sort of all those things, you had the boxes checked off of all the things that are supposed to make life happy, but there was something missing, you know, because the rat race doesn't ultimately add up to anything. So, okay, fine. So you, you have that yearning and then you went and you essentially found a way to get it for yourself. Absolutely. And I found a way to get it for myself. And, and it was a big sort of juggling act between, between working all day like a maniac and then 
running off to go and learn and doing as much as I can. I never had any formal, I didn't go to SEM and for long periods of time or anything. So actually, if I, I mean, I'm, this is a bit private, but I, but I, I don't have much knowledge, like, because again, with the, with the learning things and, and that's very hard for me. So everything that I, I do and I draw upon is all, is all emotional and thank God I have a husband that, that can um, that can um, balance me out a bit because yeah. you know, but it's it. I, I just I just learnt as much as I could in this country whilst working, um, to to fill me up with something else. So now let's talk about like how you balance it too. I mean, it sounds like you're still working a ton and you're trying to sort of fill in the knowledge gaps and increase your observance. Um, how, in terms of, I guess, well, I guess there's two points. One point is the Shabbos point. So how did that work? You know, you bringing Shabbos and I've been told, and I guess we'll see what your experience is. I was told from the people that worked at some major British companies that, um, there's a, it's a pretty secular country and they're not that into religion and there's sort of a certain like suspicion around it. So was that because, I mean, I guess in different parts of the U S there's different, you know, like in the New York area, you know, kind of there's kosher everywhere and people are, you know, yes. people know yeah, terms like so Shabbos different. Goy and, uh, but yeah. what, what was your experience? Um, no, becoming Shabbos? Shabbos? and even if it's speaking even 10 years ago, when, when I was really in the thick of it, um, I felt like, you know, I really wasn't, no, no one, no one knew I was covering my hair. Once I got married, I was going into work with my hair covered and unless they were being very, very polite, I don't, I think I would have realized they didn't know that I had my hair covered. They didn't know anything about Judaism. And every time, every time I took a step from one job to another, I really, even actually when I was at when I was at Paul Smith when I did most of my changing and growing, um I um I had to go to them and say, you know, I've lived my life one way, but now I want to keep Shabbos and, and I have to go home early on Friday. And you know all the work we do for all the shows on Fashion Week? Well, even though that happens mostly, the work mostly happens on a on a Saturday. I can't do that anymore. And I just thought, there's no way, there's no way that anyone's going to accept this. And? and every single time I was met with nothing but respect and, mm. and, and I, I want to say love. I just, I, 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 I don't know what, I think what happens, what happened was, was that everyone around me knew that what I wasn't doing on Shabbos I would totally make up for on a Sunday. Mm -hmm. And as long as you can be, and, and, and also that, that I was serious, this wasn't something that I was going to do one week and then not do another week. Mm -hmm. It was, it was clear. Everything was clear. And because they knew less about it, it was even, I think it was easier. I mm. think if I'd have been in front of secular Jews asking the same things, I think I would have had a much more negative reaction. Mm. Unfortunately, because and my husband had the same thing. He worked for secular Jewish um, lawyers when he was a paralegal right out of school. Mm. And the non-Jewish bosses would tell him, oh, you know, it's getting late, get home. And the Jewish yeah. ones would tell him, just turn your watch backwards. You know, you can you can oh. add a little more time on your watch. So 
um, yeah, this is unfortunately, um, and we can talk about why that is if there's misunderstandings or there's a feeling of you're judging me, so I'll judge you back. It's, yes. it's complicated for sure. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, so that's sort of the Shabbos piece. So that's great to hear that went well. Um, what about the Tzniah's piece? Did you have, you know, I guess you went to an, an Orthodox <laughs> shul, but didn't observe, which seems to be sort of the Sephardic, um, British, you know, <laughs> Um, way of doing things, as far as I understand, except for there are Jews that are kind of more like reform in in the UK as well, as far as I understand. But um, did you have any sort of misconceptions or negative feelings or baggage around like, you know, the really religious ones? Um, And what were your thoughts about Sneas? And can you kind of take us through that journey? Um, The Sneas thing, I, I didn't, look, I, I, I wore trousers and I wore um or pants and I and I wore <laughs> very little else in different places and and what whatever I used to wear and um but the transition of of covering up I found it might be a bit extreme to say a relief I I just didn't find it very difficult and I also definitely because I I speak in some schools and the girls always ask me, you know, what did they think about you wearing the clothes that you wear? And I am such a huge believer in there is nothing, there is no reason why anyone would ever notice that someone was dressing modestly. Hmm. Absolutely not. I, f- I feel really strongly about it. And I, and I say many times, if you go into the most beautiful designer clothes women's shops in the world if you go into chanel if you go into prada if you go into gucci if you go into all these places it's about craftsmanships real brilliant clothes are about craftsmanship and beautiful fabrics and and yes on the catwalk you might see all number of of things exposed but when you go into the shops clothes are about fabric and so they use a lot of it and things you can find the most wonderful things in in the best shops in the world, and I see no reason. I really don't see any reason why anyone would even notice that I was covering up, and they didn't. They mm. didn't notice. No one commented that. Oh, why aren't you wearing trousers, Danielle? No one noticed. Mm. I just looked nice because I presented myself nicely, and that was about it. So and talk I, about the what? What's the relief in sneers? Because I I. I was the kid that, you know, I wore the string bikinis and I wore, I don't know if you know what Daisy Dukes are, like that was a, a, (laughs) yes, you got that over there. And like, that was sort of the, you know, nickname that I got one summer on a teen tour. And I thought I was so (laughs) cool. And I look back at some of my friends, my non-religious friends from high school, I saw them recently, they were like showing pictures and I was like wearing the least in every picture. I'm like, oh dear Lord. Me too. So... (laughs) Uh, but so on one hand, I got this messaging from an early age that like, you're young, you're thin, you're beautiful, you're supposed to show this off. So I t- somehow felt that this was an expectation of me. And I, for some to some degree, I liked the attention that it brought. But then mm. at the same time, I also had a discomfort around the attention that it brought. And it wasn't on my terms. It was sort of like I felt this pressure to do it. And I would get looks sometimes from men that I didn't want to notice me. And I felt completely um, powerless to even have like control of my own body that I was merely dressing sort of how I was expected to dress. And then if there was an eyeful taken, I could never get that back again. Um, and that when I started dressing sneeze for the purpose of being like halakhically consistent and then the men couldn't get eyefuls, I actually felt so empowered. Is that your experience? Is something similar to that? 
Um, it's kind of similar. I, I think if, if I'm honest, I, throughout my childhood, I had a huge need to be visible to anybody and everybody because that made me feel like I was there, like I was important, like I meant something, whether it's, you know, I think most, most girls dress actually for girls rather than boys. We want to be noticed by our friends and our, um, who's more beautiful than the next one. And, um, and I had many holidays where I just, you know, wore very little and constantly, constantly looking at myself in the mirror and, and seeing if it all looked right. And, and did I look like the models and the this and and was I being noticed and I and I had a I had a I, I still somehow if I'm honest it's still somewhere in the back of my brain says that you know the more beautiful you are the more respected you'll be or the more um um valued our women's valued, values next yes. to our look it's, yes. it's a very sad thing our our it's look truth, and our value is it's I'd like to sad. pretend that I don't feel that somewhere, but I really, I think I do. And so I think when I started to to, to dress modestly, um, it was a that was that was a comfort. But what I what I what I found empowering is I think different to what you found empowering. I found empowering, which is still a bit psycho. Um, <laughs> I found empowering that I could dress completely sneersly. And I could still be visible mm. mm-hmm. because I still looked beautiful. Yeah. That no, was I, a big... no, I, I, th- I definitely, for me to discover how to do that. And when I first started covering up, I didn't know how to do that balance and I didn't dress so well. And I actually like not to be shallow, but like I, my freshman year of university, as you call it, I found this girl with a cute jean skirt and I was like, Hey, what's your name? And I was kind of like, yeah teach me how to dress like you because I don't know how to do this in your circle. So I, I completely, and look, I think it's still a balance. I think even in the firm world, there's still the value attached to looks. And I think that's why yes. in Isha's Chayil, Shakar Hachain Vehevel Hayofi, that, you know, um, that, that, you know, if you do attach value to a woman, um, then that's, you know, not that that's, that's dishonesty. That that's not the, her, her true value. Um, mm. but it, it runs through humanity. Um, we have just like a couple of minutes left um, and then we have to wrap things up. So I just want to kind of, I guess, sort of do some parting words of for the women listening or maybe the men um, that are in the fashion <laughs> industry or for, um, you know, I'm going to become more observant or for, you know, the teens out here that are observant already and want to get into fashion. Um, mm. Any advice on, you know, how to succeed, how to balance both um how to, I don't know if there's anything in terms of even creating fashion um, while you're covering up and creating fashion that, you know, might not be what you wear. Sort of any parting words about someone trying to balance these two worlds? Um, well, like I said from the beginning, I, I think, I think um, people use use religion or or not observing our amazingly rich heritage as an they use it as an excuse maybe to to um to say that they can't do something so i'm not going to do this because i then i won't be i won't be able to be successful um and actually now starting my own business it's not you know i've got a lot of growth to do and i and i have i have thought to myself 
oh my gosh, you know, what if I'm needed on, you know, a Shabbos somewhere or this, that and the other. And, 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 and it's complicated, especially when you work for yourself. It's easier when you work for someone else. You just, mm. you, you prove to your boss and then, and then you're okay. But, um, but I, I tell myself that it's, that, like you said, there's a, it's a combination. You are hand in hand in with Hashem. You've got to work, you've got to work so hard and you've got to not give up and you've got to believe in yourself. Um, and that's what will, that's what will make you successful. Not, nothing, and, and it will also make you successful if you have some self-esteem and you have some spirituality and you have, you don't, want to get to a place where I did where you were rock bottom and then you like clambering for if you've been blessed to be born into a family let's say that 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 has given you that then use that and use your talents because you're given your talents by Hashem and go for it and and try and I I have no idea I've had a very successful career so far however I'm doing something on my own now I have no idea whether it's how successful I'm going to get but I'm not going to give up and I'm going to keep trying. And, and the, I think the two things are separate in a way. You, you've, you, you can't say one thing's going to hold you back from another. Mm-hmm. Um, totally. Danielle, thank you so much. We're, we're, I'm sorry we're out of time right now, but you, you spoke eloquently and beautiful and you are such an inspiration. And we wish yeah. you and Panny so much Hatzlacha. Oh, Check them so out there. P-A-N-N-Y-Y.com. Gorgeous bags. I get compliments everywhere I go. Um, <laughs> and uh, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for listening. You can catch us same time, same place next week. Bye-bye.